2: Hi, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. And thank you for joining me. Today, I'm here with Catherine Ingram, MA. Catherine's a writer, therapist, and soul coach. She received degrees from Northwestern University, the University of San Francisco, and did doctoral work in depth psychology at Pacific Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara. For almost two de- decades, she's been actively studying Jungian psychology, Taoism, metaphysics, and Native American spiritual traditions. Her first book, Washing the Bones, a memoir of love, loss, and transformation, was awarded a 2014 Nautilus Silver Medal and the Next Generation Indie Book Award. And she's a contributing editor to Unwavering Strength, being released in February. For five years, she's written a regular column titled "Soul Matters" about life at the intersection of spirit and matter for the Jacksonville Review. She lives with her family in the beautiful wine country of Southern Oregon, and you can find out more at www.catherineingram.com. Welcome, Catherine.
3: Thank you so much, Cheryl. I'm so happy to be here with you.
2: I'm I'm happy to have you. I. Really, really enjoyed your book it it touched me deeply, and uh, your story i could I felt as if I was in your story reading it. and yet uh, you know it did it I knew it wasn't fiction. Mm-hmm. It, it felt <laughs> true <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
3: yes, all of it is true yeah. yeah
2: did did you um always write a lot? well, Cheryl,
3: I, I think. The answer is yes, I always did, um, but not formally. I didn't consider myself a writer. Um, I certainly did a lot of writing in all my schooling. Um, but when I uh, lost my husband, I began to journal in, in a very serious way. And, and that kicked things off, if you will. But I still wasn't thinking, oh, I'm a writer. I was just I've always enjoyed words. I've always enjoyed writing. I came. my father was a very literary person. So I think it's just something that was in me waiting for the right right timing to come out
2: and And I have talked with many people in the last year of doing this show who felt who felt compelled to write mm-hmm. in grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. i I was saying to another guest recently, I felt compelled to to sing. Uh, during my wow but Wonderful. but that sense of being compelled to do something uh-huh. is so familiar to me and it sounds yes. as if you had some of that experience too
3: oh absolutely mm-hmm. i um i I had nowhere else to turn, you know frankly, although I was seeing a therapist at the time uh, a whole <laughs> I was seeing a lot of my therapist at the time um but the The experience was so completely overwhelming that I felt I would come apart at the seams if I didn't get it out to some degree. And um, so it was really just a a way to save my life, in a sense. Mm. So it was a very deep compulsion, yes. And yes, indeed.
2: I'd like to give the listeners a sense of that voice, the voice Mm. of your book. And I wondered if you'd read the beginning of the book.
3: Oh, I'd be I'd be delighted. It was six o'clock. My mother had just shown up unannounced as usual, lonely and bored since my stepfather's death ten months earlier. Her surprise visits usually annoyed me, but tonight I welcomed her company. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was good to have someone to talk to as I made dinner. I'd been lonely myself lately. I fixed my mother a vodka tonic, made myself an old-fashioned, and joined her by the fire. I had expected Andrew home an hour ago. He hadn't called, which was unusual. Even though we were having problems, he was always good about calling. He sometimes hung out at the airport after he'd finished giving a lesson. He loved it there, loved talking shop. These days, I imagined he preferred being there to being home. Still, I wondered aloud about him being so late. I always imagine the worst, I said, rolling my eyes at my own insecurity. Then, my words still lingering in the air, there was a knock at the front door. I froze in place. My eyes darted anxiously, meeting my mother's in a suspended second of timelessness. Her look reflected my fear. The blood drained from my head, leaving a profound ringing in my ears. My heart beat wildly. I stood walked to the door, and opened it a few inches, trying to prevent the dogs from charging out. There, on the concrete step, stood two uniformed men, harshly illumined by the porch light against the pitch-black night. The man on the left had silver hair and glasses and wore a green jacket with a badge that read Deputy Sheriff. Next to him stood a rotund balding man in a black collared shirt with a rectangular metal pin that read Chaplain. Are you Catherine Alden? The sheriff asked. Yes, what happened? The words came out quickly. They felt faint and taut as I spoke them. Strangely, all I could imagine in that moment was that Andrew had been in a car accident, and I wanted to get to the hospital immediately and not be standing here wasting time with unimportant details. Bella, my Rottweiler, was sniffing loudly next to me, her large head pushing to see who was there. I held fast to her collar. There was what seemed to be a short pause, and then the deputy sheriff looked at me soberly. Andrew is dead, he said. The door drifted open as I fell to my knees. I heard someone screaming, no, 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 over and over, not recognizing my own voice. Bella was barking insanely, lunging outside. I heard my mother's voice over my right shoulder repeating, oh my God, oh my God. The men were trying to pick me up off the ground where I had collapsed, screaming.
2: Uh, it, I just uh, obviously can't know what that feels like, and yet I feel it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Listening, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a knock I think um, many of us dread. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know when my kids would be out, you know, a little bit late. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the vision I had in my head, and then yes. to have that happen, yes, must have been so
3: staggering. uh, surreal surreal it was both known and and not known you know you one does uh, imagine it if if one is like me or Uh or or a parent you know one does imagine it but but then again you don't it's unimaginable um so there there's a a, an enormous psychological disconnect i think when when that those people are on your doorstep
2: yeah and and I was very aware in that in that uh, passage of the people who delivered the message mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and how um,
3: well they were awful I <laughs> that's what I felt looking back on it Cheryl I just can't imagine someone not asking you to come in you know asking to come in and to have you sit down <laughs> or to you know it was just it was really it happened just the way I wrote it, it, uh, it you know that it, was that was it, no uh it
2: didn't have to say anything for me to be horrified mm-hmm. uh there's some way that the the curtness of it all mm. uh and and so little um seemingly so little awareness of what kind of impact that was going to have
3: it's unbelievable
2: <laughs> yeah. um and, and, of course, that's recognizable as a factor in um, in how some people relate to grief, uh, to grieving people in their lives, too, that there's this sort of discomfort that can really cut you off, Uh I'm sure that wasn't the last time you, you had that feeling. <laughs> no,
3: no, that was just the beginning of a, of a number of years of that feeling, which I talk about more in the book, too, about exactly what you're saying, Cheryl, how very uncomfortable people in our culture are with death, and they have absolutely uh, no understanding, no tact, no training, no, no empathy to, to deal with it properly.
2: I do compare when I um, when I you know feel a story like yours with the amount of time that I had and the whole community had to kind of learn the ways of loss because my wife was sick for so long. Yes. And so we learned, and so did everyone around us.
3: That's wonderful. That's
2: uh, it, rare. It is. It is. It's quite. It was quite wonderful, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I try to imagine, because I did have a sudden loss after that. My dad died very suddenly. But I'd already had that preparation. Mm. So um, the idea of kind of... You know, being clobbered that way, and I and I know you were very young, but of course, children process that so differently uh, than than adults. Just I I just had a feeling of sort of falling over the cliff mm. when I was reading. You know, about your husband's death.
3: Mm. Well, that's a that's a, a very apt analogy, <laughs> and uh, you know, you're you're alluding to the fact that. I, Obviously, this was a very sudden, uh, tragic kind of accident. Uh, my husband was killed in a plane crash. And uh, it was seven months after we had married. And he was killed in December. And I had lost my father very suddenly and very tragically on Christmas Eve when I was eight years old. And so I had been conditioned very early to this kind of traumatic Um, expectation
4: Mm.
3: and so in in the opening page where I looked at my mother and I you know roll my eyes and I say I always expect the worst you know that was a secret under not secret but a quiet understanding between my mother and myself about you know we always think back to that fateful night
1: you Mm -hmm. know when
3: my father died and to have it replicated this way uh, was a I don't know. It released all the demons. I'll just say that it released a lot of demons, a lot of things to grapple with.
2: Well, also, I think there is a tendency at the start to take loss personally. Oh yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, what is it about me? Or what did I do wrong? Absolutely. Oh and, yes. And in a way, you had sort of a of a um, a coat a, a coat hanger to hang your hat on, <laughs> you know. Yes, um, I, mean, I had a hook for that. A for hook sure. for that, exactly, mm-hmm. and um, I, I had the feeling it must have taken you quite a while to kind of work your way out of that.
3: Yes, um, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, have I worked my way out of that? <laughs> um, many, 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 many years, yeah, but in saying that, I I feel a need to back up just a bit because what happened after my father died was nothing. Mm. And that was the whole problem. I I had, um, unfortunately, when my father died, we had just moved into uh, to a new state. We didn't have community. We didn't have church. We didn't have family. You know, it was a very isolated experience. I was home on Christmas break from school, the third grade, my father dies. I go back to school in January, and that's that. You know, there's no church, there's no service, there's no counseling, there's no. My mother's not talking to me about how I'm feeling. There's this, there's none of that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went into a, a pretty cold little cocoon for a good couple of decades, and. I would say that I begin to, it began to creep out around the edges the way unresolved things do, um, you know, with symptoms and depressions and this and that. But I never linked them to my father's death um, until my husband was killed. And uh, that, as I say, broke open the door and all the little demons came out um, because I was in unmitigated grief. And I didn't realize in the immediacy of being widowed that that grief also related to my father. But over the course of time, I did. I did come to see that there was so much that needed to be grieved and explored. And, you know, my title, Washing the Bones, is really about that. It's about um, a Greek tradition um, that a year after someone dies in a Greek village, the, the female relatives go and unearth Disinter the the body, which is just bones at that point, and they have a ritual washing of the bones, mm. and a cleaning, and a weeping, and then the bones are put in an ossuary. So it, it's a very ritualized experience of going over and over and thinking about and feeling and and organizing your 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 heart and your psyche and your your whole life around. W- who you are now and what what is all this about and what do I think about it and what does it mean and how do I live now so it's it's a long process a long process and for me the long process was writing and a lot of therapy and a lot of soul searching and a lot of as you say I took it completely personally you know I uh I was mad as hell,
2: mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I felt like I was the only, only being in the soup, as my brother likes to say, I was the, I felt like, you know, I was the only one who had ever felt anything like this, because that, you know, that is the feeling, that is the feeling, it's it's such a, an enormous life-altering event that, like birth, that you feel like it's the first time you've ever given birth, you know, that you're the only woman that's ever done this, um, the death I felt that way to me too, like, but in the course of my mourning and my writing, I began to get a perspective on it, which was well, hugely helpful.
2: I find that interesting because uh, you know you start out, uh, you and many other people start out in that place of no one's ever felt this this thing, you know, all of those personalizing ways of looking at it, and yet it seems to me that grief does. Uh, uh, grief that we engage with does lead to a sort of understanding that a lot of people have felt that way everyone uh yeah there's sort of that natural um natural growth in that sense that a lot of people do experience Mm. and that connects us in the end absolutely
3: yeah absolutely the most personal is the most universal It's it's an odd um, psychological truth that the more personal you can get with something, the more universal it is and vice versa. So, yeah, I think it's, um, for me, it was the discovery of the actual, the process of grief and mourning is what brings us into that connection with others, you know, because I had never grieved my father's death, and... That was all held inside me. And what happened is the energy just closes in around you. You just build up the walls. I mean, you're not even conscious of it. Mm-hmm. But you build up the defenses and the walls to protect yourself from the pain, to protect yourself from feeling the grief. Because it is, it's is—it's horrible. It's dreadful. It's dreadful. It's painful. You know, and as human beings, we don't like to feel pain. We're pain-avoidant creatures. And in our culture... We're grief-avoidant people.
2: Which I think, at least in my mind, is, is so deeply connected, because if you can't allow pain, you can't really allow grief. And if you can't allow grief, and,
3: you can't allow love and you can't allow life. You know, so it's this terrible a spiral. You yeah. know, so, yeah. It makes our interiors enemy territory. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know that's the function of, of depression. Uh, that served me pretty well for a good few decades is, uh, you know, that a depression is a defense against mourning. Depression is a way of not feeling. A-, a dullness. A dullness, yeah. And grief is the opposite. Grief is very juicy. I mean, almost literally, we cry, we cry.
2: Yes. Yeah. It's time for our first break, and uh, let's let's continue from there when we okay. come back. Listeners, in these few minutes, be sure to go to my host page, goodgrief at voiceamerica.com, or my website, www.weatheringgrief.com. There are links to all my social media. You can get in touch with me by email um, and uh, find me in all the places I am. To find Catherine Ingram, go to catherineingram.com.
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health
5: and Wellness.
1: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
2: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. I'm here with Catherine Ingram, author of Washing the Bones, a memoir largely about the death of her young husband in a, in a plane crash. Um, one thing that I really appreciated about the book is that uh, you didn't romanticize him mm-hmm. or your experience with him. Mm-hmm. It was sort of all present and I wondered if it was painful to expose that it was Mm -hmm. very very um, moving to me as a reader because of course loss finds us in the midst of whatever we're in the midst of
3: yes Uh, Yes. you
2: know uh, good bad and indifferent Um, but I wondered how it was for you to um, you know share that in a public Mm -hmm. way
3: Um, I'm I'm asked that frequently, or I'm I'm told frequently. You're so brave, you know. When uh, the first thing people say <laughs> after they read my book, if they meet me, is "You're so brave," and I'm I appreciate what they're saying, and I also find it. Um, It's hard for it to find a landing place in me. I don't feel brave. I think that's just my nature. I'm very much a truth speaker. Um, I believe that the truth does set us free and um, that most of what we suffer in life is due to the fact that we're having difficulty being truthful with ourselves and truthful with those around us. So I say that like it's a big philosophy I live by. It's just who I am, Cheryl, Mm -hmm. to speak the truth. And the truth of my story... um, happens to be pretty interesting, um, I think. And, mm-hmm. you know, no, it, things were not perfect. I, I had on the outside, I had what looked like an absolute Cinderella story. I'd come out of some very difficult, painful circumstances. I'd met this beautiful man. He was intelligent. He was wealthy. He was kind. He was talented. He was pilot. And, you know, it was just this world of just, oh, my goodness, I'm just i've 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 hit the mother load I couldn't be any luckier, mm. but uh he was all those things he actually was all those things, and he was also a very tortured soul and he had uh, a great deal of inner pain and secrets and uh you know that that was very much part of the story and I felt it would be doing a disservice. I, I wouldn't feel good about myself if I didn't share it. And I thought it would be doing a disservice not to share it with any readers because so many people keep so many secrets. And I I think if I can share my truth, it helps others to share theirs. And if I can share my grief, it helps others to share theirs. And that's very important because that makes us into real human beings. That makes us into very empathic, interesting, grounded human beings that, and we can relate to one another. I
2: was thinking because I've been doing quite a bit of writing myself lately about the, um, the treacherous territory of kind of exposing other people's truths Mm. in the process (laughs) of telling our own yes, yes,
3: um, yes. and
2: how delicate that can be. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was thinking about his parents reading the book and, uh, you know, uh, your mother. And (laughs) 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 Um, that must have been quite a process with the people that love you, that you love uh, to to say, okay, I have to tell this truth. Mm. uh, Even if, you would prefer me not to. Uh-huh. How was that with the people around you?
3: Well, um, I I wrote the book. It took me four years to write. Um, and I wrote the book and it was just a very self-involved and spiritual kind of process for me. I, I had what I felt was a blessing from my late husband to share what I shared. Mm. And um, I just wrote it. And I wrote it as truthfully and as beautifully as I could. And then I went through the whole process of the publication and all that whirlwind. And then it was time for the book was out. And I, I had a distinct feeling the day that it was published of, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost as though I hadn't considered the fact that other people would read this story. And I had, but then again, I hadn't. And all of the of what you're talking about, Cheryl, this, this feeling of, what will they think? Was absolutely ter- terrifying. I think I had a good two weeks of sheer terror of I'm going to be cut off from all these people who are going to hate me and and I really just had to sit in the middle of that, you know, existential anguish for a few weeks of of just thinking. Well, what is my alternative? My alternative is not to publish it. I can just say I've, I wrote it and I'm done. Mm. But that wasn't what wanted to happen, and so I had to just uh, really take a very deep breath and say it will be what it will be, and I I can't control for other people's responses. This is my truth; they don't have to agree with it. And I, you know, I hope that there will be forgiveness if there needs to be forgiveness. Um, but I also want to add, if I may, that. I took great pains uh, in the revising and editing of my book to take out anything that felt the least little bit like Mm mean-spiritedness or like little gouges or little, you know, ways to get back at anyone. It was really a way of looking at the people who were challenging in my life, and my mother was one of those people, um, with compassion, with honesty, but also with compassion. And in the writing process... I think was one of the first times that I really began to see some of these people in a way that I hadn't before. So it was actually a very healing uh, experience for me. And I will say that although my mother does not come off well (laughs) in the book, um, I was very close with her and uh, my mother just passed away one year ago and I lived very close with her and I took care of her and I... Uh, and she read my book in the last months of her life, and she forg- She didn't even felt, feel that she needed to forgive me. Um, she accepted it. She said, I'm too old to care about such things anymore. Mm. Um, she said, I learned a lot of things I didn't know. That was her response to it. And I think there was a tacit love and forgiveness, and I lay with her and held her as she died. And it was a very beautiful passing. So you know she passed a month after my book published mm-hmm. and I know that she waited for this book mm-hmm. before she passed
2: well there was also and this would would catch my attention because of course I work very much with uh, one one aspect of my work is is um, death and loss in the LGBT community mm-hmm. and so of course you're husband's struggles around gender identity and what that meant in his life and your life and all that really uh touched me so profoundly um because that's something that I think unless people are you know coming out and living their lives with that identity is very much hidden and Uh um and so that moved me very much that you talked about that and the and the complication of his not being at peace with whatever was the truth for him and, you know, how that impacted both of you. Uh, Yes. It seemed such a deep deep part of your story.
3: Yes, yeah. He he had a lot of gender identity questions and confusion. Um, He had left his... Uh, sort of blue blood background and come out to the west coast which is where I met him in San Francisco he had before I met him been living part time as a female and um, right before I met him he had um, made a decision that he didn't wish to pursue that any longer he wanted to just really find comfort and find a way to be comfortable as a man and uh, that's when I met him. I was just I had just come out of a really awful, violent divorce, marriage and divorce. And that's when I met him. So it was an interesting time. And um, we were both in a counseling program training. And you know, I I didn't have personal qualms about anyone who had gender preferences or bisexuality or homosexuality I just I didn't care um, I was very clear with him about what I needed and wanted in a relationship which was a very straightforward uh, straight kind of relationship and he was fine with that um, the truth became that he wanted to be fine with that
2: mm.
3: but that he wasn't so, after we were married, we had a lovely, wonderful you know courtship and marriage and just absolute idyllic heavenly and then, unbeknownst to me initially, I think the feelings returned for him the the discomfort in his body, the desire to be a female, I think all returned he he wasn't talking with me about it, but I was it was showing up in our relationship mm. and I kept trying to address it and it was just too difficult for him to address and um and quite literally uh, the day after I had broken the ice and confronted him about this you know begging him to talk with me about what was happening he was killed
2: and that's and that's um you know, what I was talking about earlier on about just we're, we're in with a sudden loss. You're in the flow of your living. And I have to say it was clear to me throughout the book how very much the two of you loved each other.
3: Mm-hmm. That oh, yes. there was
2: such a deep love oh, yes.
3: uh,
2: beyond beyond whether you could kind of figure out how to live with who you were together—that mm-hmm. uh, was very clear. What a dilemma! Yes, but yes. but then to 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 kind of suddenly not be able to work that dilemma out together. Yes, uh, it felt like such a profound part of what happened.
3: Uh, it, well, yes, I think it was a profound part of his death. Although his death was an accident, you know, on a spiritual level. The death was absolutely an accident. He had a student in the airplane who parachuted to safety. Um, he would never have put anyone at risk. Something happened up there. All that's on the, you know, the the, the material plane, mm-hmm. but on the spiritual plane, I think that he just could not live. You know, as he was, he could not live with the torture of where he was, mm-hmm. and it was he needed. He needed to release it. It was too much for him. He could not accept himself. Mm. And much less the culture being very accepting or a wife being very accepting. You know, so although we talked about everything and I was very in on, there was no secret between us. When he died, it was, you know, he was freed in his death. And in a sense, I was freed also you know and but, yet and but yet what I, a... carried, I carried the secret still you see because yes. i couldn't just come out and say well all this was happening too i was grieving everything yes. i was grieving that his suffering i was grieving my loss of my marriage i was grieving my father i was grieving my own death you know and it was just a mess
2: i think that's a good time to uh hear another piece from your book Uh, Which starts, I did not want to face the piercing pain.
3: Yes, I did not want to face the piercing pain An undeniable awareness that the person who was my life and my future was no longer here. I did not want to do the work that was going to be required to come to terms with this dreadful new reality. But the rest of the world was continuing on with or without me. And if I were not going to permanently absent myself from this forward impulse, then I had to face it head on. I had to cry and mourn, but I also had to fashion some sort of new life for myself, one that I could not envision, one that I wasn't sure I wanted to envision. I began taking long walks in the historic cemetery up on the hill. I took Bella to roam in the quiet and to place myself in the midst of death, since it haunted me anyway. I decided that I might as well look it in the face. I walked slowly, reading the inscriptions on the old stones, most of which dated back to the late 1800s. During one of these walks, I stopped at a particularly old and beautiful plot and carefully studied the dates and names that were slowly fading into the granite. Five of the couple's children had died before they reached the age of six. They lost one child every year, sometimes two, How did that mother, that woman, survive such pain, I wondered. But she did survive, well beyond the deaths of her five children. As I stood reading the names and dates, I slipped into reverie, seeing the women as they stood in this self-same spot, watching them lay their children in the ground. I tried to imagine what went through their hearts and minds. People say that losing a child is the worst loss there is. I doubted this, based on what I was feeling, but of course I couldn't say for certain, not being a parent. Just looking at the size of the tiny graves made me want to weep. My mother continued to insist that Andrew's death was wrong, that he was too young to die, that it was not his time. Standing there in the graveyard on the hill, watching deer pick their way silently among the headstones, I realized that it was a common thing, this dying young, and I was, in a sense, in good company. I was not alone, although it felt that way. From a more distanced, objective point of view, perhaps even a more spiritual perspective, someone dying young is really no different from someone who is old and infirm dropping off the twig. Less expected, perhaps, and harder to accept. But left to its own devices, death, like birth, comes when it's good and ready. There are no guarantees on our shelf life. We make up dates in our heads. We imagine that a person will live for a certain span of time but it's all just an imagined number that we turn into a promise in our minds. We convince ourselves that a person ought to live for 80 years. Not so. We just made it up because it's damned hard, and this the understatement of a lifetime, to lose someone you love before you expect to. I did not believe that Andrew's death was wrong or untimely. It apparently was his time, even if the rest of us could not make sense of that. But believing this did not make it my process any easier understanding that a person's time is up is one thing mourning that person's departure is another thing altogether
2: Hmm. time for a second break on that note listeners out there don't forget to connect with me at my host page and let me know what you're thinking and feeling you can also find links to my social media there to like share retweet linked etc And Catherine Ingram Ingram can be found at www.catherineingram.com. Back after the break.
5: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
2: Uh, talking about her beautiful book, Washing the Bones. Mm -hmm. And before the break, uh, you were reading that passage about the cemetery. And Mm -hmm. um, I have a cemetery, as I was saying on the break, I have a cemetery near me too that I've spent a lot of time walking in, which some people find crazy and other (laughs) people find right up their alley. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, to me, the thing about it is it's such a a calm place. I, I don't live in a small town like you. I live in a big city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are uh, parks and beautiful land around here. But I would say that's one of the most peaceful places mm-hmm. anywhere nearby.
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I lived in San Francisco for, for a decade plus, And I, I also love photography. So I go to the the cemetery in Oakland and take a lot of photographs. And it's it's a beautiful spot. Oh, very spirit, it's a very spiritual place. So, you
2: know exactly the place I'm talking I about. I do. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. All the dog walks happen there. Uh-huh. Uh huh. One thing that uh, stayed with me throughout the book is the sense of you defining and then redefining yourself over and over again. I, it, sa- it feels to me as if you were already a seeking person.
3: Yes, I think uh, that's
2: true. All along, kind of trying to figure out who you were and, yes. and what was your calling and what mm-hmm. was your uh, what were you doing here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. But I thought you captured that ongoingness so well because I I do think sometimes we have the idea we find ourselves and that's who we are then. hmm but I had the sense in your book of, uh, I imagine when the book ended, you would still be changing and growing. Uh, you <laughs> a, know, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that that wasn't yeah. something that was ever going to end for you. And I really resonated with that. Was that accurate or was I uh, kind of reading that in?
3: Oh, no, I, you're spot on. And I, um, if you're speaking literally of the end of where I end the story, um Everything took place after that. In terms of my um, personal and spiritual growth, uh, really came after uh, the period of the book. Although it started, it started certainly. You know, my my grappling with things started in earnest when I was widowed. But it's been since, and and you're very right. I'm I'm a I am a seeker, um, and my profession. You know, I'm I am a therapist. I, I work with clients. Um, you know, both here in Oregon and also actually internationally, um, since we can do that these days with our marvelous technology. Mm-hmm. And um, I I am a spiritual seeker as well. And, um, you know, it's very important always for me. There were two big pieces that, that needed to happen. And the first uh, for me to deal with my losses was the first piece was to actually grieve I was to let myself grieve Mm. and that's what I work with with clients also because we are so resistant Mm. to grief and you know as we were saying in the very first part of the show grief is aliveness yes you know grief is feeling the flip side of our love it's feeling the, the passage of something that's so precious to us in a way that we can no longer interact with it in the way we want. We can't hold them and kiss them and talk with them the way we want to. You know. And there's this, my brother said to me when I was widowed, he said, well, you know, the, the reason you feel so awful is because you loved him so much. And, you know, in the book I said it was cold comfort. Mm-hmm. But, of course, he was absolutely right and he sure. is absolutely right. And grief is part of love. Grief is part of love and part of the great work I have to do with myself and now I do with clients is to facilitate that process of grieving and to allow it, to accept it, to surrender to it and to know that you won't be swept away forever, to allow yourself to sink down into it, to feel it, to cry it, even in your resistance, accepting that you can't accept it. You know, if that's what you need to do is to say, well, I can't accept it. Well, okay, I'll accept that. I can't accept it. And every day, every day, every day that you can exorcise this grief is another step into becoming your new embodiment, your new self. Because we die when someone we love dies. The we that we have known is gone. Mm-hmm. And we have to re, be reborn. And that's a process. And you have to re-gestate. you have to rediscover yourself and you will be a different sort of person so you know there's a lot going on on multiple levels and grieving is what greases that you know is what um, lubricates that process of becoming something else if you don't grieve you freeze you freeze you become hard you become defended you become closed off to part of life and you know that's that's just no way to live. It, there's a, there's a better way. So that's the first really important idea that I I found the hard way, and uh, you know that I that I like to share with the world. And the second part is, if after you grieve, you are so inclined, there is this really amazing journey that can happen of uh, discovery of making meaning out of your loss, of once you've opened yourself by grieving, once you've created space inside by crying it out and screaming it out and writing it out, whatever painting, running, whatever it is you do, you have create space inside. And in that space, something marvelous transpires. There is a transformation that occurs. And for me, that is spirit or soul coming alive. And when that happens, there is a very powerful transformation that comes that is completely unexpected that's going to take you into new places. And that's what happened for me, you know, and, and it's still happening, of course.
2: Of course. Well, because once you've uh, kind of said yes to that, it is, mm-hmm. a, it is a river. It's not a, uh, it's not a rock. There's right. a movement to, to us as souls, I think.
3: Mm -hmm. oh yes
2: um and so uh, i'm i'm noticing that now i used to be a very uh very private person Mm -hmm. suddenly i'm doing a radio show you know (laughs) how did that happen who knew (laughs) knew?
3: yes well your soul knew yeah but
2: yes exactly But
3: but but you must have somewhere along the line then cheryl you've opened yourself to to something I'm sure you didn't set out and say, you know, I think I'm going to have a radio show. I didn't set out and say, I think I'm going to write a book. Um, But I opened myself to the impulse.
2: Well, I guess what I found talking with you and many other people this year is that once the fear of meeting a feeling you don't want to handle (laughs) is removed, Uh uh, it's much easier to feel the direction that's right for you
3: oh oh yes
2: uh, i I've just heard so many stories this year that I would that I would uh, capture that way uh, absolutely and and of course, isn't that a wonder?
3: It is a wonder you know <laughs> i I close in my book with a poem by Rumi, and if I may, I'd like to share just a bit with the listeners one of
2: my favorite poems that would be fine.
3: <laughs> I'm not going to read all of it um but He says, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and attend them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. I just love that. Oh, I just, I just love, love that, that
2: too. And I I was thinking uh I I was noticing because my mom died recently and when I was sitting with her body, I mm-hmm. I just went into sobs on her. Yeah. And I and I was thinking in my head this feels good. Mhm. Um mm-hmm. And, and I think that's something that that before Sort of surrendering to grief, I could not have said. This this feels Mm. good. It's good to be where you really are.
3: It's real, isn't it? Yes, that's (laughs) what I was going to say. It's real. It's real. It's it's true. It's your true integrity. It's your true self being expressed. That's beautiful. And
2: and also, uh, for me, it feels very good to have a mother I can grieve. Yes, uh, you know, or anyone that I can. That I've truly I mean, really loved that
3: yes, much. Yes, uh, exactly. It's, a, it's kind exactly. of a privilege, isn't it? It is a privilege. It's the greatest privilege of life is love. Mm-hmm. And, and our grief is an expression of that love. And so, and so grief is beautiful. Grief is good.
2: I'd like to circle back around to kind of this sense of unfolding uh, meanness, who we are and who we become, mm-hmm. and I, I'm thinking that the um, the part of your book that that uh, starts Andrew's death pushed me right back into my ungrieved loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really speaks to that. Would you mind sharing that?
3: Certainly, certainly. Andrew's death pushed me right back into my ungrieved loss. His sudden departure, mimicking my father's, the blow reopened the primal wound, making it wider and more apparent. Exposing what I had hidden away, I had to see what was waiting for me. I needed to unearth the bones and weep. My sadness did not entirely dissipate as I poured over these runes, but my fear did. So too the wrenching, all-consuming pain. My father hadn't left me, and neither had Andrew. They had died, and that is a very different thing. They were following the course of their own fateful trajectories. The fact that I was subject to the fallout of their journeys was not accidental, but neither was it personal. Their deaths changed me, affected me in ways both subtle and profound, but so had their lives. Finding this less personal perspective completely altered my experience of loss. I was still part of the drama, but I was just one actor among many, not a one-woman show. Coming into awareness of the interconnectedness of life and abandoning the idea of coincidence for the more encompassing concept of synchronicity lifted an unseen weight from my heart, shifting me out of fear and victimhood. Not only was I not the next Job, I was, in truth, very fortunate to have had these experiences, as wrenching as they may have been, because traversing that terrible terrain had led me to this moment. I wasn't special or singled out, or destined for a life of loss. My world was contained within greater worlds, a sort of Russian nesting doll of realities. There was so much more to life than the limited reality of what was immediately apparent. I had no idea what was next, but I was ready to simply allow it to happen. Proof of this shift into a new, more expansive perspective came during a routine doctor's visit in mid-November. As I sat in the waiting area filling out paperwork, I came to a section asking about my personal status. I paused and considered my choices. Single, married, separated, divorced, widowed. I began to smile, and then I laughed out loud. I was all of the above. They didn't have a category for that, but they needed one. This awareness of my new expanded status brought no shame, no sadness or grief, on the contrary, it made me feel wise and strong. I was a survivor. I smiled as I put pen to paper and circled all five words. I was all of the above.
2: I I love that, and maybe <laughs> mo- more most particularly because I've I've been uh, challenged by those forms. As
3: <laughs> <laughs> I still want to circle them all,
2: <laughs> and you, you know, know what,
3: you can. You can,
2: you can for sure, <laughs> but especially adding in the, you know, before marriage was legal for me, mm, you know, right, did right. I dare circle married? Yes, yes. <laughs> it was a big question for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. Catherine, I've really enjoyed this conversation a lot. Uh, oh, let's let's stay in touch, and I really um, hope you'll let me know when things are going on with the book so I can help you get the word out about them.
3: Oh, thank you so and much! Such
2: a beautiful book.
3: Hi, oh, thank you. I've had such a delightful time talking with you and and sharing my story, and I appreciate it. Absolutely,
2: my pleasure for real. (laughs) And listeners, you can find Catherine Ingram at www.catherineingram.com. Next week, I'll have with me Tom Zuba, whose acclaimed book, Permission to Mourn, A New Way to Do Grief, shares the lessons he learned facing the losses of two of his three children and his wife at three separate times. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.